Well, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. We are in this great letter that John wrote to Christians who were living in a town called Ephesus. And the reason I chose this book to begin our Advent season and then into the next year is the main issue of the day was that people were coming to the church in Ephesus and they were making a statement that Jesus never came to this earth in the flesh. That he was just a divine God who simply appeared like a ghost, but he never actually came. He was not the incarnate one. And so I've titled this whole series, The Incarnate Christ, because John's point throughout the entire letter is that Jesus did indeed come in human flesh. And this morning we celebrate that fact that he was born in a manger on this Christmas day. And so we celebrate that fact. And again, I want you to think about the big picture of why we're going through 1 John. And it's usually you hear sermons from the Gospels or the prophets. Uh, but I wanted to go through this letter because it speaks to the very core of Jesus' humanity. And so today we're on the section of 1 John chapter 2, beginning verses 12 through 14. This is God's holy word. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Now, when it comes to our spiritual lives, every single one of us in this room are at different levels in our spiritual journey or a different season in our spiritual journey. Uh, Some of us here are considered spiritual fathers and mothers of the faith where we've been Christians for most of our lives, and we are seasoned veterans as believers. And what that means is you know how great of a sinner you are, and you know how great of a Savior He is, and you continue to seek to to grow in your faith. Some of you fall in that category. Uh, Others of us, we would fall into a more mature category, or or less mature category than the first, but we've we've been Christians for, for a while, and we've fought a lot of battles. And we're continuing to press on, but we're still growing into this maturity and, and as, as a seasoned veteran. And then the, the third group of us might be brand new believers. You may have just recently become Christians uh, this past year or the past couple years, and you're, you're brand new to Christianity. And then I would argue there's a fourth group here of, of people who are not Christians, uh, who might be in church for the very first time today. Or uh, very rarely go into church. And, and you're here uh, because you want to learn more. Or you're here with your family. And we're glad you're here. And we want you to keep coming if you live in the local area. Uh, but so glad that you're here. Uh, so some of you may not be considered Christians. But no matter where you fall in that category, all of us fall in one of those categories. And as we look at this text for a few minutes this morning, John was writing to these different categories. Specifically the first three I had mentioned here. He wrote to three different groups of people. And by the way, he did refer to fathers and young men. He is not excluding women. So ladies in the room, you are also included in this passage. 
because uh, men are considered spiritual leaders of the home and of the church, and they represent women as well. And so women are also included in this message as I bring it. Some scholars believe that John was referring mainly to two specific groups and not three. Uh, The first group that he mentioned, or people, is little children. Now, as we journey through this letter, you're going to see this phrase seven times throughout the letter of 1 John. When John mentions little children, he is writing to the entire church of Ephesus because John was in his 80s, and he's writing as a spiritual grandfather and father to all the rest of of, of the church. And And he's basically using a term of endearment, saying, hey, you are my spiritual sons and daughters of the faith. And so one interpretation of this is that John was writing to everyone, and then he broke it off into two different groups, the young men and women, and then the the newer uh, people in faith of, of of the new believers. I don't particularly hold that view. I believe that John was writing to three groups of people. I believe he was writing to new believers who are little children considered, and it could be based on age, but it's more on based on your spiritual age of maturity. He was talking to little children in the faith, meaning new believers in the faith. He was talking to fathers and mothers of the faith who had been seasoned veterans who may have been Christians for 50 years or 60 years, and they were seasoned veterans. And then he was writing to young men and young women uh, who were younger uh, in age and stage and younger in their faith. But they had enough maturity to fight the battles against Satan and to know what that looked like. So I believe those are the three groups that he was writing to. And we're going to talk about those three groups. But notice here in these verses, these few verses, that he repeats himself. He essentially says the same thing to each group. Why does he do that? Well, repetition is is an act or an art to, to communication. If you think about it, you may have heard in marketing that you have to say something seven times for it to stick or for for it to sell to your customer. You have to present it to them in seven different ways and seven different times for them to finally get it and to buy your product. That's what John was doing when he repeated himself twice here. Uh, he He was emphasizing the point to each of these groups that what he was saying was very important to each specific group based on their spiritual experience. And so we're going to look now at uh, how John repeated himself. And we're, looking, we're going to look at those three specific groups of people. The first group he mentioned and he wrote to was little children, verses 12 and 13. He said, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. There are two things he was saying to the new believer, the person who recently became a Christian. He was saying, these are the two most important things you need to know as a new Christian. You need to know that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, and you need to know the Father. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, forgiveness is the fundamental experience of the Christian life and the condition of fellowship with God. Forgiveness of sins is the one thing that all Christians have in common. And as I just shared with the children, we all are sinners, and that's why Jesus came That's the one thing we have in common is that we're sinners and we are in desperate need of a savior to come and rescue us from our sins. That's what John was writing about, that Jesus came from heaven and, and and he came from heaven and he came to rescue us from our sin and death. I think about how he came from heaven to this earth. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 tells us, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. 
Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came from heaven to this earth. Uh, one, one Puritan writer said, heaven kissed earth. Heaven kissed earth on Christmas when Jesus came to this earth. He left heaven and he came here so that we could be forgiven of our sins. But not just forgiven for our sins, forgiven of our sins for his name's sake. You know, the, the word name here, or the meaning of name, it stands for character. We are forgiven on the basis of who he is, not on the basis of who we are. And that's very important, because we are forgiven for his sake and not for ours. We are not forgiven because of what we have done, but only because of what Christ has done. We are forgiven for his name's sake, because of his works, what he has done, not what we have done. Here's what the Christmas story is all about. A willing Savior is born to rescue unwilling people from themselves because there is no other way. A willing Savior is born to rescue unwilling people from themselves because there is no other way. Paul Ted Tripp, he wrote an Advent devotional that I highly recommend. And in one of his days that he wrote, he said these words, Jesus was willing to leave the splendor of eternity to come to this broken and groaning world. He was willing to take on human flesh with all its frailty. He was willing to endure a birth in a stable. He was willing to go through the dependency of childhood. He was willing to expose himself to all the hardships of life in this fallen world. He was willing to submit to his own law. He was willing to do his father's will at every point. He was willing to serve when he deserved to be served. He was willing to be misunderstood and mistreated. He was willing to endure rejection and gross injustice. He was willing to suffer public mockery. He was willing to endure physical torture. He was willing to go through the pain of his father's rejection. He was willing to die. He was willing to rise and ascend to be our constant advocate. Jesus was willing. And without his willingness, you and I would be without hope and without God. A willing Savior is who Jesus is. He came to forgive us for his name's sake. He was willing to leave heaven and come to this earth for his name's sake. That's the first thing that new believers need to remind themselves of, especially at Christmas time, that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins for his name's sake. But the second thing that John mentioned to new believers is remember that you know the Father. You know, to know Jesus means that you know the heavenly Father. And we see John write this throughout his gospel and also through his letter of First and Second John. John 17, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 14, 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 1 John 2, he said, no one denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And then 2 John 1, verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Because we know the Son, we can know the Father. Because we believe in Jesus, we believe in God the Father. I love what John Calvin said about this. 
He said, the Son of God became the Son of Man, that the sons of men might become the sons of God. Isn't that rich? The Son of God became the Son of Man, that the sons of men might become the sons of God. That's why Jesus came, so that we could once again have fellowship with God the Father. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He is the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. He's the real reason for this season. And if you want to know God, you got to know Jesus. Because he's the way to the Father. And if you know Jesus, you will know the Father. New believers, all believers, need to be reminded of these two essential things. That we've been forgiven of our sins and that we know God through Jesus Christ. So if you're a new believer, if you're a seasoned believer, let this sink in. Again, as you go into Christmas tomorrow, be reminded of these two foundational truths of Christianity. And let it warm your soul and let it lift up your heart. John first wrote to new believers, little children. Then he writes to fathers and mothers of the faith. These spiritual giants, these veterans, these probably elderly people like himself who had been through or been in the trenches and had gone through the school of hard knocks. And what does he say to these fathers and mothers of the faith? In verse 13 and 14, he said, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Again, he repeats himself, says the same thing here. He does that to emphasize a point. What he's saying here is that these spiritual fathers and mothers, they were considered the most mature Christians in the church because they held a deep knowledge of the eternal God. Through a lifetime of spiritual experiences, these fathers and mothers of the faith, they came to know Jesus in a deeper way because they, they realized he was from the beginning. They realized he existed before the creation of the world. They realized he existed before the incarnation. They trusted in this great Jesus, this great God who was from the beginning. And I believe it was John Newton who said, the longer I serve Jesus, the sweeter he grows. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he becomes to me. So over the years, these mature Christians, they came to know the one who was from the beginning. The key mark of maturity to, is to know God through Jesus Christ. And John was just encouraging them, continue to know the one who is from the beginning. In fact, he was speaking as an older Christian. Some people said he was in his 80s when he wrote this letter. And he's speaking as a grandfather type figure who had been a Christian for most of his life. And he's saying, I want you to know the one who was from the beginning. A few weeks ago, we looked at chapter 1 and notice what he said at the beginning of his letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. What's he saying here? John is saying, my friends, my church friends that I'm writing to this letter, I actually saw Jesus. I was with him. I heard him speak. I saw him. I, I even touched him. 
There's references at the Last Supper, when they were having the Last Supper, that John was next to Jesus. And I'm sure he was shoulder to shoulder touching Jesus in the flesh. And John was saying, I was with the incarnate one. The one who was from the beginning, who has no end. One of my favorite passages when it comes to Christmas is Micah 5.2. And it talks about the prophecy of how Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. And notice how it describes this Messiah to come. It said here, But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphratha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, and one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Notice here that Micah was saying that about 700 years later, after he wrote these words, a Messiah would come. But this Messiah was coming forth from of old, one who is of ancient days. What's he saying here? This Messiah is coming from the beginning. He has no end. He was there in the beginning. He is the son of man who descended from heaven. Now let me say something, and I want this to stick. Mere humans, they don't descend, they begin. Jesus was not a mere human. He descended from heaven. He descended from heaven. He didn't begin when he came. He was already in existence. He is God. He descended to this earth. And he, as the Nicene Creed states, is begotten of the Father before all worlds. He is before all worlds. And as Jesus went from being a baby in human flesh and he grew up to be a man, do you know what he said about himself? He described himself as I am. Why is that important? Because God the Father described himself as I am in the Old Testament. And when Jesus said I am, he is saying I am God. And I am from the beginning. In John chapter 8, he said these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. When he made that statement, he was saying to his audience, I'm God. I was there even before Abraham existed. As I was telling the children a minute ago, one of our favorite things to do as a Hammond family is watch Christmas movies. And this season, we've been watching, uh, there's a, a newer TV show uh, that is just a series uh, called The Clauses. And it's uh, Tim Allen as Santa Claus and his family. And uh, it's in now in the second season. We've been watching it. And it's fascinating to watch this and, and to learn more about Tim Allen and this character and how he was a human being and, and he becomes Santa Claus. And he, and he leaves this earth and he goes to the North Pole. And then as his wife, Mrs. Claus, and as their kids get older, they discover these powers that they never thought they had before. And you can see Alan go through this small little chimney and squeeze through it and deliver gifts to, to kids on Christmas morning. Well, as I compare Tim Allen's character and his family to the great one, Jesus, I think about how Jesus has no end to him. He didn't come from earth and then go to the North Pole. He came from heaven to earth. And he's always been there. As I described St. Nicholas, you know, he, he, he was born, what, in 280 A.D.? Jesus has always been around. 
He is the one from the beginning. And as we've been watching this series, I, I just want to remind my kids of, of how Jesus is the reason for the season. And he's so great. So that's what John was getting at here to the seasoned veterans. And I'm talking to a lot of seasoned veterans in this room. A lot of you have been at Christ's Covenant for most of our history. Some of you have been here since the beginning 30 years ago. I'm looking at some of you here. I mean, it's amazing to know there's a lot of history in this room, not just with our church, but just a lot of history regarding Christianity in this church. A lot of seasoned, mature believers. I've talked to some of you as of late, and some of you who are more in the retirement age, I've heard comments such as, well, I don't know how much I can give, or I don't know what God has me. I don't know my purpose now. Don't buy into the lie from the world that you need to just go and play golf and watch TV and watch Fox, Fox News and CNN. You know, God is saying, you are a spiritual father and mother, and the church needs you. I'll tell you what your purpose is. Your purpose is to invest in the younger, mature people and, and your grandchildren and the new believers. And what better time, spiritual fathers and mothers, I'm talking to you because I'm not one yet. What better time for you than right now at Christmas? You can invest in your grandkids and share a few brief stories of how God has been faithful to you. You might share a, an example of a, of a Christmas time when God just showed up when you least expected it or when he provided for you. I would just encourage you, write letters to your kids and grandkids. Write emails. Give history lessons to them because we need it. We need to see what it takes to mature and you have maturity on your side. So please don't just give up. We need you. And as the year approaches, a new year approaches, let that be your new year's resolution, to come alongside of, uh, of a younger person and mentor them, to get more involved in the church and the community because we need you desperately. So John was speaking to you, spiritual fathers and mothers, and he was saying, the longer you know Jesus, the sweeter he grows. Don't let him become stale. And you've heard the Christmas story 500 times. You could probably recite it in your sleep. Don't just recite it as, well, I know about the angels, I know about the inn, I know about the wise men, I know about the shepherds. Be engrossed in it, be enamored with it. Let it come alive this year for you like it never has before. And ask the Lord to help you because he can help you, he can do it. The third group that John was talking to were young men and young women, verses 13 and 14. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. There's three things he mentions here about younger, mature Christians. That they were strong, that the word of God abided in them, and that they overcame the evil one. First, they were strong. Now, strength is the characteristic of youth. Strength is considered a natural virtue of being young. And these young men and women were strong because the word of God abided in them. You know, case in point, I was playing basketball with my son the other day. And we were, we were shooting around. He's getting better. I'm still beating him, but he's getting better. And I remind him that I'll beat him, but one day he's going to beat me and I'll, I'll never be able to beat him again. <laughs> and I said, so right now I'm enjoying this time of beating you. Uh, because one day I'm not going to ever beat you again. But he was, he was shooting the ball kind of from a distance, and he, and he missed a few times. I said, Caleb, just, just come a little closer and, and, and shoot a little closer uh, because it can be a little more competitive. And that was a challenge to Caleb. 
Because after I said that to him, he kept shooting from the distance. He made four in a row. <laughs> and I was like, okay, all right. Dad just challenged son, and he just rose to the challenge. And we almost tied. I mean, I, I barely beat him. It was like, what, you know? And so it, it was just interesting to see this energy that this young boy has. I was talking to one of you recently, and you were working out with your son. This man was in his mid-40s, and his son is 18 years old, and his son works out every day. And he was working out with his son, and he wanted to prove to his son that he could work out as much as his son. And so he started lifting like his son, and he said, by the end of it, I could barely walk, and my son was laughing at me. You know, strength is a characteristic of youth. And how were these young people strong because they had the word of God abiding in them. Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's how you remain strong and how you're able to fight the battles is if you immerse yourself in the word of God. And young people in the room who are mature in your faith, who've had many years of experience, how are you going to fight the temptation of the world and, and Satan? The word of God, let it indwell among you. And let this year, this coming year, be a year where you immerse yourself in scripture. Let it be your New Year's resolution. And don't just let it fade out in two weeks. Ask the Lord to help you stay grounded in his word because it will keep you strong. The other thing that, that John mentioned, not only were these people abiding in the word and they were strong, but they were able to overcome the evil one at times. How are we able to overcome the evil one? Not in our own power. It's only by the grace of God. If it were up to us without, without the Lord, we would be hopeless. We would be defeated every single time. But because the Spirit of God indwells in us, literally in us, we can fight these battles. He can help us fight the battles because he's in us. He's with us. If he wasn't with us, we couldn't fight the battle. But because he's with us and he's in us, we can fight. We can fight. And these young people were fighting. They were on the front line of the, of, of the church. They were fighting these Gnostics who were saying Jesus never appeared in the flesh. And so they were fighting these spiritual battles with their youth and energy. And they were able to fight because the Spirit was in them. You know, Satan, he tries to do two things. He tries to accuse us and he tries to tempt us. He tries to accuse us with things that we've already done wrong. He tries to tell us you're worthless, you're guilty, God never loves you, he won't ever forgive you for what you did. He tries to accuse you and make you feel horrible. He also tries to tempt you by doing things that you haven't done yet. He tries to tempt you by saying, hey, if you just can do this, then you'll be happy, you'll be fulfilled. How do we fight the tactics of Satan, of his accusing us and tempting us? We fight his accusations based on the work of Christ, and we fight his temptations based on the word of Christ. As we fight the accusations that Satan, the lies that he tries to fill our minds with, oh, you're helpless, you're worthless, you don't have it en enough in the tank, you can't fight these battles anymore, I've got you right where I want you, you can't defeat this sin, you can't fight this sin. You know, he says these things all the time, right? So how do we fight it? Our tactic is we remember the work of Christ. How Christ came to this earth and he fought the battle for us. We don't have to fight it without him. He fought it for us. He defeated Satan when he died on the cross. The, the battle was won when Christ rose from the grave and he ascended into heaven. The war continues. You know, I, I'm a military guy, so there are battles and there's war. You can win battles, but the war continues. Jesus won the battle when he rose, but the war continues. So as we fight this war, we can win battles 
We can win battles by basing our lives on the work of Christ. His work has already been done. And we remind ourselves of his work and his grace. How do we fight the temptation of Satan? It's through the word of Christ. To allow the word of God to indwell amongst us. So young Christians in the room, and I'm talking my age down, maybe 50 down. People who've been Christians for a long time who are mature. You know, somewhat. I'm not mature, but I'm trying to be. Just because you don't have the years of maturity of others, like the spiritual fathers and mothers in the room, it doesn't mean you're of less important or less valuable. My friends, you have the youth, the energy to fight some of these battles, and you're oftentimes the the first front line of defense. The church needs you to rise up. We need you to take the mantle and run and fight these battles. But you can't do it alone. You can't do it without Jesus You need a spiritual father and mother to guide you and tell you, hey, don't do these things, do these things. Find a mentor if you don't have one. Let them them share with you best practices of what to do and what not to do, and you can learn so much from them. There's a fourth type of person in this room that I haven't really addressed, and that is the non-believer. John didn't specifically write to them, but throughout the letter he addresses non-believers. Some of you might be in church for the first time today. Some of you came because your family invited you. Some of you really want to learn more about church and about Christianity. If that is you, I'm glad you're here. Keep coming. Whether you're here, come to Christ's covenant, or whether you're somewhere else, get involved in a local church. Please, learn more about this Jesus. You're never, it's never too late to give your life to Christ. This week, something profound happened for me. As a kid... I used to watch professional wrestling, and that was back in the day when it was cleaner than it is now. But one of my icons, one of my heroes was Hulk Hogan. You know, Hulk Hogan, he would get into it, he would, he would get really into it, this big guy. Hulk Hogan, Hollywood Hulk Hogan, he, he ended up, he ended up uh, just having these huge muscles, and he ended up having his own TV show as this millionaire. Well, this week, at the age of 70, he came to faith in Christ. This week. You know what he said? Total surrender and dedication to Jesus is the greatest day of my life. Here he is. He had all the muscles in the world. He had all the money in the world. You know, he had all the fame and popularity in the world, and still something was missing. What was missing for Hulk Hogan? It was Jesus. And when Jesus changed his life this week, he was baptized. It was a big news story. And he said, total surrender and dedication to Jesus is the greatest day of my life. Greatest day of my life. If you're here today and you are not a believer and you're wanting to learn more about Jesus, I'm telling you, if you commit your life to following him, it will be the greatest day of your life, the greatest day. And it will lead you into eternity, into heaven, where you'll be with him and you won't have to suffer aches and pains. You won't have to deal with sin and death and sickness, but it will be a perfect place. So if you want to come to know Jesus, admit that you're a sinner, that you've disobeyed him, you've wronged him. Believe that he came to this earth and he died on a cross so that you could be forgiven of your sins and be made right with God the Father and commit your life to following him. Do that today. You can pray to yourself. You can go back to your home and pray, Lord, I just surrender. I dedicate my life. I give my life to you. And if you do that, you will find the greatest joy. That is beyond speakable. 
After that, I would encourage you, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Study who Jesus is. Get involved in a local church. You can't do it alone. If you're here locally, come here. We'll disciple you. We'll help you grow in maturity. But please, please, please be reminded you're never too old to come to faith in Christ. Let's pray.